Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Brené Brown, you are listening to The Real Estate Investor Show, episode number 28. Welcome, ladies, to The Real Estate Investor Show, providing inspiration, strategies, and insight to empower women investors to live balanced and financially free lives. Now, here are your co-hosts, Liz and Andressa. On today's show, we have one of the most respected women in real estate investing, Kathy Fecky, who is the co-founder of the Real Wealth Network, a California-based real estate investment group with over 39,000 members. She is a regular guest expert on CNBC, Fox, ABC, and Bloomberg News, and author of Retire Rich with Rentals. On today's phenomenal interview, we explore how to find the best market to invest in, raising private money, syndications, crowdfunding, and what makes women investors stand apart. Welcome back, ladies. This is Liz. And this is Andressa. And you're back with uh, on the Real Estate Invest Her Show. We're delighted to be back with you this week. Uh, we are honored to have Kathy. How are you doing, Kathy, on our show? I am doing wonderful. I had a great morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And we're going to hear about Kathy and her fantastic background. She's got such a wealth of uh, knowledge and experience. We're really excited and thrilled to be, have her on our show. Um, but as we do, we'd like to kind of get connected with, with all of you listening and the ladies listening. Uh, and Jess, I wanted to quickly share of, you know, the whole idea of working on your business versus right. just working in it. And my husband and I have a standing monthly business meeting where we go through our goals and talk about what's working, what's not. And we've blown off this meeting the last two months because okay. quote unquote, we're too busy. You know, life happens. Life happens. And we're just like, oh, we're too busy. And today we met and we're like, and he's going away to Europe. So we had to meet today and just to talk about a few things. And some new awarenesses came up, some new goals we have set for the rest of the year. And and I just, it's, it made me think after the meeting, I was like, you know what? You cannot put out, you can't put off the important but not urgent meetings, especially like working on your business. And some awarenesses came up from this meeting today that wouldn't have come up had we just been in the day-to-day -day grind of making our goals happen. So just want to remind the ladies listening, you know, don't ever, don't ever compromise on those important but not urgent, you know, meetings. So uh, especially where you're regrouping on your goals. That's such a, a, a great point. I was actually talking to a friend of mine, um, young, young, young guy uh, working his, you know, his butt off to gain new clients. He's very successful for the short period of time that he's been in the business. And he was saying, I've been working, you know, six out of seven days of the week and all of that. And I was like, but what's the time that you're working on, on, on the business itself, not just answering calls and, putting up with fires. So we had that conversation this week and it's so important really to prioritize that time to double check your progress, yeah. right? You gotta, you gotta see how, and really, you know, pat yourself on the back. Absolutely. Too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So just wanted to give a quick reminder of that. So awesome. with further ado, I want to jump into our, our fantastic here guest. I, you know, again, Kathy, just thanks for being on our show. And as we do with all of our guests and the ladies listening, we'd love to hear a woman's journey of how they began, not just investing, but how they get pulled into this business. You know, it's, it's a crazy business, which you know, I'm sure you, you'll be attest to with your background and all the experience you have. So, you know, what compelled you to get involved in real estate investing? And, and you know, that's a great place to, for us to start. Sure. Uh, well, I have, um, my, my husband is a motivational 
speaker, I guess, although he doesn't like calling himself that, but a, a business and personal coach. He's now my co-CEO at Real Wealth Network. But what you said earlier, I'll just, I just had to add, um, if you don't put it in your calendar, it won't happen. So just sit down, do it quarterly, and uh, get those planning meetings and, and with your staff, with your company, with your family, your vacations. It, honestly, like my daughter, uh, my husband took my daughter's ex-boyfriend rock climbing last weekend. She's like, what? You know, why didn't you take me, dad? It's like, oh, you know, it wasn't in the calendar. So okay. anyway, I made, I was like, you guys sit down and plan your daddy-daughter time because it won't happen. Time goes so quickly. But anyway, that is true. Uh, <laughs> uh, back in 2012, uh, Rich had just come out with his book called Extreme Success. And he was touring the country. Uh, he had a New York publisher who was billing him as the next Tony Robbins. He got with the highest um, advance that any kind of new author had received. And things were just wonderful. We just bought a big new house. And I had two little kids. I was a stay-at-home mom after having a, a busy career of my own. Uh, but I, got to, I wanted to stay home with the kids. So really, I was living the dream. Really, just the, literally, it was a white house with a white picket fence and, you know, <laughs> two perfect kids and a perfect husband. Um, and then he, he came home after uh, being on the road. I, he had just come back from an interview in New York. And, and he said, I, I just noticed some freckles and I should go check those. So he's a redhead. He has a million freckles. I have no idea how he knew this freckle was special, but he went to check it. It turns out it was melanoma. Uh, it, Further tests showed that it was had had possibly spread. They did more tests. It looked like it spread to his liver. And at that point, the doctor said, you know, you probably have six months. Hmm. And so, I, you know, you can be at the top of your game. You can, you know, everything can go amazing until it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And those are, those are moments that you just really can't prepare for. Uh, we had kind of prepared financially by putting aside 10% of our, of our income in savings uh, 10% into, um, you know, retirement, and then 10% into kind of a slush fund for fun things to do and stuff. So we were following our financial planner's advice. And, uh, you know, we, we thought we were doing things right. But I, I cannot tell you how quickly you can burn through that uh, with medical bills. You know, so here we were at the top of our game and suddenly just, just struggling. Um, there was no way he was going to be traveling around the country promoting his book, uh, you know, if he only had six months. I mean, it's really a great question. Like, what would you do if you only had six months? So I thought, okay, I'm going to figure out how to make money. You stay home with the kids. We had, you know, young kids, um, do what you want, enjoy your life, you know, <laughs> but I, I totally didn't believe it. Not at all. So I was right. And, uh, the doctor was wrong. He's been, cured. He's fine. It's, you know, fast forward, I guess, 15 years or so. And he's as healthy as can be. He just got back from um, rock, rock climbing in Yosemite, like, I don't know, thousands of feet up. So he's healthy and great today. But at the time, I had to figure out how to support our family and give him the time he needed. I had a radio show that I had been doing. I've been in broadcasting most of my life. Mm -hmm. still had this radio show in San Francisco that was, you know, eh, it was okay. I was kind of just interviewing people that I thought were interesting, but it didn't have a theme. And suddenly it had a theme and that theme <laughs> was like making money. How do I make money as a stay-at-home mom? Because the last thing I was going to do, if the doctor was right, was, you know, after kids would go through such a horrible tragedy to then also have their mom go to work all day and never be around. So I was like, okay, there's got to be a way to make money at home 
and, and ideally passively. So I just changed the uh, content of my show, which is still here today, The Real Wealth mm -hmm. Show, to, you know, how do you make money? Like it was just a foreign concept, one that I didn't really care that much to learn about before. I just liked doing careers that I liked, like news and reporting, and I did some modeling and, you know, just stuff that I enjoyed. But all of a sudden it was like, no, this is about money. How do I make money? And that's what I did every day. I just started interviewing people on my show who had, who had created wealth uh, from nothing. And, and it came down to real estate and owning a business. So we did both. <laughs> that's great. So from the interviews for, to your first real estate deal, how, how did that look like? Well, our first deal was before this and it was totally and completely by accident. We live in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay area and it's, really expensive now, like the most expensive place in the country, maybe in the world, but definitely the country. Um, but it always has been really, really expensive. So we had no idea how we would ever buy a house. We'd been renters. Uh, but my dad had been um, not, not the most educated real estate guy. Um, he would buy a house to live in and it would make money because it was in California. And then he, um, he invested in some apartment in, uh, in Marin, but it turns out that area ended up not being a good area and the managers kind of just drove this apartment into the ground and they sold it and, um, and he had been depreciating it for years and all of a sudden, right when he was about to retire, he got a notice in the mail saying, oh, we sold the building and you know, he would have had to pay all the back taxes, uh, all, all the um, recapture of the, the depreciation he had taken and it would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars and he would not have been able to retire. So I was like, explain this to me. I didn't know anything about real estate. And um, this is 20 years ago. So um, I was like, explain, what do you need? And he goes, I just need to find another property. <laughs> and I'm like, why is that hard? You know, I'm a renter. How about I just rent it and eventually own it? And so we talked to the CPA and the attorney. This is a big lesson here. Anytime you do any kind of financial transaction with real estate, always check first with a CPA, always check with an attorney because there's things you may not know. And in this case, there were a lot of things we learned that, yes, we would take all this burden off my dad. We would live in the replacement property. He'd never have to worry about it. We'd cover all expenses, all repairs, everything. And then someday we'd inherit it. And so that was the agreement we had. Another really important point, my husband put it in the family trust, this agreement, because when he passed, believe me, the other siblings wanted to know how I got the deal. Now that the, this deal, this offer went out to all the kids. I was the only one who jumped on it, but that house ended up making a million bucks. Mm. And so by the time my dad passed away, we inherited the house. It was stepped up to market value. There was no back taxes. They were wiped away. We owned it and we had a million dollars. So you, you know that if we didn't have that in the family trust, that would have been split with the siblings for sure. So anytime you're doing deals with family, get it in writing, you have an attorney drafted and record it in the family trust. So, um, so that is really how we, how we initially got that house. Uh, but then, so that was our first deal. And then because it made so much money and because by now I had been interviewing people on the Real Wealth Show, I learned that we could refinance, take some of that cash out and go buy in Texas. So we bought like 12 properties in Texas. Wow. 
Yeah. And that and that's one of the things your your company does where they mm-hmm. but you know, in other words, making money in one part of the country and, and, yeah. and investing it in a different part and, and we're you know talking about the economy and Justin and I was I was sharing with you, we got back from this conference and the first speaker they you know that spoke at this conference, um, Mid Atlantic Summit last few months ago was the an economist. Mm-hmm. And you know, he, he kind of like got you a little um, nervous, you know, yeah. uh, but, you know, just in terms of where, where, where things are headed and what, the, what's gonna, potentially happening. So just again, being careful and, but that's something that you have such an expertise on. So mm-hmm. how did you know, so I'm curious, you, so you pivoted, you made, you did really well in California. How did you choose Texas or how did you make that move? So you could feel confident in a new area that that was unknown to you un you know, clear that was the right area. I mean, how did you know yeah. it was a good area? It was, it was my show. I, I, you know, just like you, you have an opportunity to interview people that maybe have more experience than you. So at the time I, I didn't have any experience. I didn't know anything about anything. So I'm not going to take credit. The only credit I will give myself is a de- desperate desire for knowledge and to get that knowledge from, from experts, people who were doing it versus uh, at the time there was just uh, what what today is you know a real a, like a, a genuine real estate investment group back then they were only out to get your money I'm, mm-hmm. I'm telling you there were there was nobody out there looking out for you it was like month after month it was people that would come and sell boot camps and and uh, and the way that the real estate club would make their money is on fifty percent of that so there was nobody out there uh, really sharing what you know like legit yeah. stuff for, <laughs> that um, and a lot of these speakers weren't even investors, you know, they were just selling product. It blows so. my mind sometimes <laughs> when I still meet somebody that you're teaching something that you don't do it. How? It's amazing. And that's just kind of how it was back then. I think now there's more ways to find out who's for real. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously there's a lot, it's a lot easier with the internet, but it, you know, there wasn't then. So anyway, I had, I sort of broke through that and started to expose these people by bringing on real investors, you know, and I, and I had um, Robert Kiyosaki on. I was very lucky because I was on uh, KSFO, which is a really big San Francisco station. So I could pretty much get anyone on the show. And he said, sell everything in California. Uh, you know, these loans are insane. Nobody will be able to pay them back. I knew that because by then I had become a, a loan broker and I knew how ridiculous the loans were. So he said, you know, when it comes time for these people to have to pay, they won't be able to. Uh, but Texas so, so he said, basically, that the prices in California are inflated simply because of these loans, because anyone could get a loan, so that drives prices up. Um, but whereas Texas was more strict with their lending laws, and also it wasn't a hot market yet. It was only hot for people who knew what to look for, and Robert Kiyosaki knew what to look for. It was job growth and population growth and affordability. These are the three things that today I look for. Mm. Uh, jo- where are the jobs going? Because where the jobs are is where the people are going. But if, if those jobs are in markets that are already unaffordable, it's kind of tough to get the cash flow. But in, in Texas, you have this crazy combination of massive job growth, massive population growth, and home prices that were 26% undervalued. So that's the, that was my first exposure to, okay, you know, the, the media is always talking about the housing market. And, and there is no housing market because California was at the peak of the peak of the peak and Texas was down here. Right. So you could sell at the peak exchange and buy, you know, four or five, six times what you had and increase your cash flow by that much. So, you know, that's where I got the idea and, um, and I did it Then I talked about it on my show and then all my listeners wanted to do it. And I, so I started referring them to this agent and then I thought, 
wait, I am sending this agent a lot of business. I think she should pay me. And that's what I learned. Oh, there's a thing called referral fees. And that's how my business started is like, oh, okay, I'm a, I'm a licensed real estate agent. They're licensed. They can pay me a portion of their broker fee. That's how, that's how our Real Wealth Network started. Nice. So you mentioned about how you look at a market, right? Is there a way besides, of course, getting the sources online that folks that are listening to us can look at their own market and say, hey, something is up here. What are some tips that they can see that a recession or a plateau is coming? Well, I think the, the safest bet in your specific market is to look at affordability levels. And, and so don't just look at price gains because that doesn't, that doesn't tell you very much. You look at a market like, like Denver. Denver, if, if you look at the price gains, I mean, you know, they've never had such a booming market, but they've also never had a, an economy like they have today. So it's just a different world. Um, the same with Seattle. I mean, it's a different place than it used to be. Uh, Dallas, Houston, uh, they have had total transformation. So of course their home prices aren't going to be anywhere near where they were at the last peak. So you kind of got to just get that out of your mind. And too many people just look at, oh my goodness, we're at a new peak. Well, first of all, we have inflation. Um, you know, second of all, we have lower interest rates. So what you really want to look at is the payment. And is, is the average payment in line with the average income? And if that's the case, then you have some room to go. Now, we know that interest rates are going up, right. uh, but at some point they will slow down again because the whole point of interest of, of the Fed raising interest rates is to slow down the economy. And when you slow down the economy, then rates go back down. Mm -hmm. So I don't think people have to worry that we're going to have the kind of interest rates that we had in the 80s that were in the double digits. Uh, our, our economy simply cannot cannot handle those kind of interest rates, it would combust. So the, the Fed would do what they need to do to make sure that doesn't happen. And it's very manipulated, very controlled. Uh, so I'm not worried about interest rates getting out of, out of control. So I would say if you're concerned at all about whether or not your market's in a bubble, check out what the current, you know, what the average home price at a six, maybe a 6% interest rate would be. And if that is still affordable, for the average income, then I think you're fine. And a lot of people say, um, you know, California, you can't, you know, it's, it's a bubble. Well, San Francisco might, it, it might be, because I'm not sure that payment is anywhere near what anyone can afford. Um, but in parts of LA, you'd be surprised. It's actually still affordable. Parts of San Diego, definitely inland, the inland empire. Um, my daughter's bought a house in Northern California. So there's still opportunity wherever you are. You just maybe can't be downtown. <laughs> well, that's a great point because, you know, and Jess and I, that's how we started working together is we, we do, you know, some projects in Philadelphia. So if someone said, okay, is the Philadelphia market tapped? You know, is it, is it bubble happening and is it just oh, getting overpriced? Yeah. But then the next question is, what part of Philadelphia, right? So yeah, yeah. certain parts of Philadelphia have, that, has ha that have happened in our newest projects in an area that is shifting. So it's still affordable. So I think that yeah. that's just a great point, Kathy. It's like people get really focused on Texas or the, it's a large, it's, it's such a micro, it's micro, you know, areas. I mean, that's what yeah. you really have to study. I mean, I was also going to ask you a question around building a team that's across the country. So here you are, here you are in California, you decide to, to start investing uh, in, in Texas. I'm sure you visited obviously and, and got 
acclimated to the area, but how did you get some, you know, as they say, boots on the ground? How did you start building your team? I'm sure you have team members, so to speak, everywhere in terms of where you're investing. How did, how did you do that? How did you make that pivot and how did you trust them? And I think that's yeah. the biggest part in this business, right? Because everyone in that area is going to be like, oh, my area is great. Come invest, you know? Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. So I, I'm just curious. How did you navigate that? I, I did it the hard way. I, I, um, had no idea what I was doing. So I went uh, and found a, a real estate agent and, you know, I got off the plane and she picked me up in a, her nice car and, you know, had waters and, you know, whatever, it's perfect hair. And, and she said, um, okay, where do you want to go to the, uh, to this really nice neighborhood that the Californians love the median home, you know, like the homes around 400,000. I was like, come on lady. Like, um, I, Sorry, this just fell out of my ear. I just thought you—you got to be kidding me! Like I'm not that—I'm not that naive. Like I know that you have better deals. So she was literally. She literally goes, "How many would you like to buy today?" Wow. I, I was like, um, "None," and I left. And then I just thought, "Okay, how how can I find a good agent?" And I'm just really lucky that I thought um, probably from a property manager. You know, if they're the ones who are going to be managing the properties for me, I'm just going to call every single property manager and meet with every single one of them while I'm here, not waste my time with realtors. Now, I am a realtor, so no, I, I'm really not trying to put down other realtors. I can just tell you that my guess is 90%, 80%, a very high percentage of, of real estate agents do not invest and don't understand it. They throw out numbers that they think sound good. Uh, maybe it's better today because there's more education, but at least back then, no. And so I thought, well, I don't want to get my advice from someone who hasn't done it, you know. So then I, I went and uh, just met with all the property managers. I started to learn where the rental demand is. I got educated on, on rental rates and, um, and where the growth was. And I'll tell you, property managers give you a ton of information. Um, you, they're not all good. Most, most are not. Back then they were mostly all not good, <laughs> but today the systems have improved. But what they did give me was a lot of information. They would have maps and show where the demand and the calls and the growth and the jobs and all this. And so, uh, and then I would just, I think at the time, just look for an agent in that area um, or they would, they would refer somebody. So I ended up founding a, a finding an incredible team in, um, that was both property manager and agent in a little town called Rockwall, which was about, it was like an hour drive out of Dallas, but we knew that, a, a, they knew that a new freeway was coming in around, so there was this beautiful lake and you had to drive around the lake to get there, but um, they knew that a, a freeway was being built so that it would be a 20 minute drive instead of an hour. Mm. And uh, it was a cute little town and the home prices were around 140 to 150 for brand new homes in this wow. adorable little community overlooking the lake. And, and they lived there. So all these things made sense. So I literally, uh, you know, I called my husband. I'm like, can I buy five properties today? And he's like, uh, I don't know. Maybe put them in contract and I'll fly out. So we did. And he's like, wow, this looks, this looks great. Let's do it. So we, we jumped in. It was a bit overwhelming. But, uh, and again, we used the money that we refined the house and used the money uh, to do that. And back then also it was nuts. You could actually get an investment property with no money down. <laughs> so I mean, there's so ways, so many ways to get into real estate. Um, so, you know, but we, we ended up really picking the right market that, that became like step number four for me. So it's population growth, uh, no job growth, population growth, affordability. And the third is um, infrastructure development. So now I knew, Oh, okay. If you can get ahead of the path of progress, if you know, a freeway's coming in and that's going to, 
really shorten a commute to a certain town where those properties are cheap because nobody knows that's happening yet, you can really make a ton of money. And we did. I mean, those properties doubled or tripled in value. We sold them before they <laughs> before they made all that money. But for everyone else who did the plan, they made they did really well. And you know, like I said, quadrupled their cash flow as well. But you made such a good point because you got to be ahead of the game. So sometimes mm -hmm. people might be thinking, what the hell you're doing investing here, right? Yeah. Well, definitely, for example, we have the 2035 um, city plan. So we know where the city is going. That doesn't yeah. mean that they're going to accomplish everything, but that's where the development is going. So we can buy some properties in certain areas, hold a little bit until that development occurs and, mm -hmm. and, and just, but it's, it's information, it's data that is available to any, anybody that wants to just take it. Sometimes you yeah. want to go the easy route, just, just like that, but it's, it's there. So from yeah, you do have to know that the city doesn't always do it though. Right. Um, we bought an apartment in Anderson, Indiana, which, uh, you know, there's really not anything happening there, yeah. but they said, um, that the city was planning on putting in a big, uh, reservoir and half the city would be underwater and all of those homes would uh would be underwater basically wow. and it would be a reservoir and uh and our little apartment would then be waterfront mm -hmm. and and we're like oh my gosh this is going to become a vacation spot for the people of, of uh, indianapolis and it's going to provide the water for the city and you know i went to the city to verify it and i mean oh my gosh can you imagine we bought this distressed apartment that would soon be waterfront um, so it, it was exciting, but they still haven't done it, you know, and they may not. So, exactly. you know, you do have to be aware that you take risk anytime you're, you're in a gentrification project because you never know if it will happen or when it will happen. And in the meantime, you're kind of dealing with, you know, maybe a, a higher crime, lower Absolutely. income area. Yeah. yeah. I think the best way will be to purchase regardless if that happens or not. You can get mm -hmm. out, you can get cash flow while things are still moving and just get out. Yeah. So from, from that, those deals to raising more than $100 million in syndication deals, when we say the word like syndication, a lot of people get very, you know, scared about it. It's like, oh my gosh. So syndication deals, um, there's a lot of things involved. Clearly, why? Because you're doing bigger deals that involved um, a lot of um, credit investors. What are, if somebody's looking to transition from um, regular, I'll call regular, normal, private money um, to syndication, what are the tips that you will tell them? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so many, but... Um... I would start by saying that when I first started, I did have a friend who kind of became a mentor who owned dozens of homes. And, and um, after we bought a bunch of homes, we had, had no more money. And I went to him and said, what do I do now? <laughs> we have no more money. And he said, ah, now you become a real investor. And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, now you need to use OPM, other people's money. I thought, well, how do I do that? And of course, like you said, one way is to borrow as a private money where maybe somebody has their, their finance, maybe, maybe a relative or somebody has all their money invested in bonds or the stock market or something that is not making a high return and is secured to nothing. And you say, hey, I found this property and you know, you 
come in at a low LTV and I'll pay you 6% better than or 10%, whatever. So that's a good way to start uh, with private lending. But in any, in any circumstance where you're using someone else's money, you have to treat that like it is, I mean, literally gold, like it is um, the most precious thing because people are, I, in my opinion, taking it far too lightly. And if you lose someone else's money, I don't care what asset protection you have. I, I don't care uh, how you've got it set up. It will not be pleasant. So, you know, just make sure that before you take that step in borrowing someone else's money, that you, you know what you're doing, that you have experience. You do, don't do your first deal with someone else's money. Um, the only time I would and have done that is if I had a partner who was a, a, an expert. So I had the network, but I wasn't an expert for sure. So, um, so back in 2010, when the world had fallen apart and we were in a, a major, major housing crisis and an economic crisis, uh, I, I had an, a following that kept growing. And so I had um, a lot of people, a, a huge group of Australians who were just, just had millions of dollars to send my way. Um, and I had never done that. I, di I didn't know how to, to I didn't even know the word syndication. I didn't know what that was. But I did have one of my listeners call and say, hey, I've got a project in Portland that is an unbelievable deal. 27 waterfront townhomes on the river in the Pearl District, one of the hottest parts of Portland where the re redevelopment was headed. Um, and, and he said it, the bank failed and the project went to the FDIC. It's 70% complete. It's already built, just needs the interior finish, just the fun part. Um, and he's like, we can, the loan is 14 million. We can get it for 3 million. And, um, and I thought, well, I just, I really just don't know how to do that. And he said, well, he had done syndications many years ago. And, uh, and so I'm like, okay, well, I'd, I'll see. So I sent out an email. This was, don't do this. I did it wrong, but <laughs> sent out an email and said, Hey, you know, I found this project and who would be interested. And we had, I mean, we had more than 3 million raised immediately, like in, by the end of the day of people saying, I want to participate. I want to participate. So it turns out you're, you have, there's a process in, <laughs> you can't, you have to follow it because any anytime you raise money from someone else, it falls under security laws, not just real estate law. Uh, so it's a whole new set of rules that you have to know and understand, uh, which I didn't know and understand at the time. Uh, but what I did know is that I better make sure that who I'm working with is the real deal. So we did background checks on this developer. Uh, I went to see his projects. I went to his house. Um, I looked at his resume. I talked to people he knew. He was the real deal. He had years uh, 40 years experience as a developer and this was going to be a slam dunk for him. So uh, we went ahead and um, put together some documents that probably weren't that great. I, I think like he took them off the internet. Like, you know, don't do that. Don't, don't do your legal documents through legals. I won't say any names, but you, know, you want a, a, a professional attorney drafting your, your documents. Now I'm really lucky because the deal was fantastic. This developer was amazing. Everybody made money. Um, in, in the middle of the recession, they were making 20% plus returns per year when everybody else was just, you know, broke. And so it ended up being really successful. And then I found out I had done it wrong. So any deals after that, um, I, I think what you have to understand here, I'll turn that, 
is that um, back then they didn't even have crowdfunding yet. It was it's private placement, which means that you can only reach out to people who you know, and and there's all kinds of ways that attorneys. Um, you know, define that, but it's basically a pre-existing relationship and you have to prove you have that, whether, you know, in our case, we know who's joined our network. We know when they've come to them, to us. We now know when we've had conversations and we take notes. We know if they've attended events and we have it all documented. So if anybody ever were to come and see, we could say, oh yeah, we met here. We talked then. We talked about this. I know their kids' names, blah, blah, blah. We have a pre-existing relationship. Now there's some crowdfunding sites that interpret it their way, which might be, you joined three days ago, now we have a pre-existing relationship. I, I think you need to be careful because I don't know that that would hold up if the investment failed. So every, nobody cares if the, if the investment succeeds, nobody cares. It's only when it fails or if it doesn't come out quite the way it was expected. If you, uh, if you quoted like 20% returns and people got 10%, they still might sue you. So you've got to be careful about what you're promising. Everything needs to be uh, estimated or we believe or we, we have reason to think or whatever, but never, you know, this is what's going to cash flow and, you know, here's the return you're going to get. You just don't know. There's always risk. So anyway, that was the private placement. I didn't quite do that right. We do it obviously right today. And then in 2012 uh, with the Jobs Act, we got crowdfunding and that. That's where now you can tell everyone and you can advertise and you can raise money any way you want, um, but it has to be with accredited investors only and they have to prove that they're accredited. So there's several ways to do it. Bottom line is make sure you have a really good syndication attorney to help you. And, and those syndication fees are really high. Mm -hmm. we, our last deal, we paid 150000 for a development in Costa Rica because there was issues with you know, taxes there and taxes here and you know, self-directed IRAs. There was just a lot more to it. Um, but so I wouldn't, you know, don't be thinking of syndicating for something small. It, it needs to be kind of a larger project because just the, the attorney fees and the filing fees and all of that are, can be pricey. Yeah, I was joking with my husband, Kathy, because we had done a 